the same hand. So I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. I was born in 79, so I lived there from 79 till 92. It was a beautiful country to grow up in. So my brother's 18 months older than me. Uh, my mom's a young mom. She had us when she was quite young. She was 19 when she had my brother and 20 when she had me. And so we always grew up really close. It's kind of like part friend, part mom. She didn't work a whole lot when we were young because my dad preferred it that way, just for her to raise us. And my dad was a businessman, entrepreneur, and was pretty successful and owned a restaurant, well, two restaurants and part ownership in a fast food chain franchise. And he also owned part shares in a construction company, a nightclub, just all different things, lots of different business ventures going on. We were pretty well off, so had a nice home and went on vacations four times a year down to the coast because Johannesburg is a big city. It was a really beautiful place to grow up if you had money, which we did. But my immediate surroundings were a lot of people that had the same amount of wealth as my family at school. But my cousins that lived on the coast, they didn't have as much at all. Like they didn't have nice clothes, they drove rusty cars, they worked really, really hard, they didn't take much vacation. Um, my uncle owned a bakery, him and his wife ran it every day. He got there I think at four or five to start baking, then she'd take over and close and like they just had a simple hardworking life and so I knew when we go down and have vacations there my dad would always spoil my cousins and you know take us out for lunch and like buy clothes for them and they were super excited to go shopping because they didn't get to buy new clothes very often. So, yeah, I knew I was well off because, I mean, it was just obvious by looking around. My first language is English and so is that of my parents. My father's side um, of the family spoke Afrikaans as their first language, which is a Dutch derivative. And so he grew up speaking Afrikaans and English in his house, particularly to his grandmother who didn't speak any English and he was very close with her. On my mom's side of the family is all English, so there was no Afrikaans spoken in her family. So everybody either spoke English or Afrikaans as their first language, and then you had to learn one black language depending on what the, the dominant language was of your area. So like on the coast you would learn Sutu, but we learned Zulu because it was more dominant there. And then Rosa, it was another one which was rarely spoken mostly, I think, because it was so difficult to, for, for a white tongue to pronounce. But it sounds really cool. I used to watch the was a news channel a lot because I just liked listening to all the clicks. In grade seven, we had to learn French and Latin in addition to Zulu, Afrikaans and English. So we had five languages for two years and then after that you could specialize in whatever languages you wanted. But Afrikaans and English were the whole way through from kindergarten to graduation. I hated Afrikaans, hated it. Afrikaans for me was useless because everybody spoke English and Afrikaans and I, I didn't like how it sounded and I also didn't like my teacher which is probably the biggest thing. It didn't mean anything more than that to me. Although looking back, it's, it seems kind of strange that during apartheid that we were taught a black language, but perhaps it's so so people can communicate better with their staff. I don't know, maybe that's the overarching reason. I'm not sure, but I didn't think about it too much when I was a kid. But I loved learning Zulu, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a beautiful language and I liked having the opportunity to communicate with, with the black people in their, in their mother tongue. My biggest reference point was just the black people that I knew in my life were staff mostly of our of our family so we had two maids and we had two gardeners that lived on the property full-time 
And I knew that they, were, they, did, they didn't have much money. I knew that they took taxis to and from their homes. I knew that my parents helped send their kids to school and bought the kids uniforms because they couldn't afford it. So, I mean, obviously I knew that there was a disparity there between what I had and what they had. Uh, the staff, for me, were like friends. Like on the weekends, I would garden with the gardeners and I'd take lunch and tea with them. I wanted to spend the whole day with them. Like we'd go into their space and make tea and, and bread. And I loved having jam from the, from the tin. I loved the white bread that they liked to eat because it was just so, you know, chewy and delicious. It wasn't like the healthy bread that we had at the house. Um, and we'd have like black tea with lots of sugar. And yeah, I just really enjoyed spending time with them. And then as far as the maids were, they were like ants to me. The one I didn't like very much because she had a big temper. Her name was Melita. Her niece, Betty, who was younger, she was really sweet. And, you know, I'd give her a hug every morning when I woke up. And her kids, uh, she, had, she had a daughter. That daughter spent her summers at the house. And I would swim with her in the pool and uh, was kind of like having like a little sister around. Taught her how to swim and would learn how to s say things to her in her language. Uh, she also spoke a bit of English and stuff. So yeah, it was just, it was like having a family member around. But obviously they, I mean, they cooked and cleaned and I knew that they had a job, but I didn't feel like that they were, like I never bossed them around or asked them to do things for me. I just, they were just around. They were kind of like part of the family. I can remember other white families having close relationships with their maids. I saw it fairly often. Often maids served the role as, of like a second mother. They usually put the kids to bed. If parents were out, like my parents uh, were out at the restaurant on every Friday and Saturday night. And so if, if my brother and I didn't go, then our maids would stay up with us, watch TV with us, put us to bed. We spent a lot of time with them and that was pretty common. They were kind of almost built-in babysitters in addition to doing their household chores. I was aware that the staff was black and we were white and that that was the common thing. You never saw a white maid, it was always a black maid. But I guess I didn't know it to be any different, like I hadn't lived anywhere else. I don't remember ever questioning my reality or is this different or is this bad and I think I had a fairly positive view of what my life was and of how people in my life were treated. and. I think I felt like everybody loved each other and got along and I didn't really see it as a bad thing. But one thing I remember realizing as a kid was like going to the grocery store. I would say Salbona to black people because I knew that they would understand what that meant and it was my way of trying to be polite and respectful of their culture. So I'd say Salbona and they would not initially make eye contact with me, but then they, when they heard me say that they would look at me and then they would greet me again in, in their language. I could see that I made them happy that I was trying to show that respect. And I also learned African handshakes and I would, any, at any opportunity, try to practice my African handshake with them and they love it. They're laughing and they, they show me a different move or whatever. And that made me really happy but I could see that they would call me ma'am, even though I was a child. And that made me feel really uncomfortable. And so I think I always wanted them to feel comfortable, them to know I respected them instead of I somehow deserve their respect as a child or, or their reverence or whatever that, whatever that is when you call somebody a name which implies superiority or, or ownership or something. So that made me feel really uncomfortable. I've, I always had a love for the black people in my life. I've always felt like I want to understand the culture. I, I've always enjoyed my friendships and relationships with black people, 
in South Africa and, and in my subsequent trips back. I feel a really like a strong pull in my heart to understand the culture and show them compassion and love. And I guess I felt at the time that it was something that was a really good thing, like that, that, that effort towards them was a really good thing. I don't think I understood why, because I was pretty young at the time. So the house was two and a half acres. You came in through a driveway with big electric fences and the walls are 10 foot tall and had like spikes on top and all the windows had electric security so that at night you armed your house or if you went away, you armed the house. We had two German Shepherds. Not many people have ornamental small dogs. Like they're usually big dogs that could do some damage if somebody was to break in. So we had two of those. Yeah, it was a pretty big house, really comfortable, and we were in a Garden Homes magazine, so it was pretty, pretty cool. We had a, a swimming pool and a tennis court and had lots of friends over and would basically play at the house because we're in South Africa, a lot of people live in places with like big walls and barbed wire along the top and then electric fences and it's really difficult to go places unless you get driven. So we ended up hosting a lot of friends at the house or you would like go to a birthday party at somebody else's house or go to the movies or whatever, but you'd have to get driven everywhere. You couldn't like walk down the street and visit a friend or... I mean, you grow up with that as your reality, but you see others don't have as much. It was pretty common in South Africa for people to have their houses broken into, normally by force, like with guns, knives, usually guns. And it would often happen in the middle of the night. It didn't often happen in broad daylight, although sometimes it did. Most times it happened in the evenings when in the darkness. A lot of people hired private security because you couldn't trust the police to respond either in time or effectively. So most people who had money would hire private security. And so we had a private security company that would come to our house on a daily basis a couple of times a day and usually in the evenings to do a patrol. It was necessary to keep safe. And I, I don't think I knew anybody that didn't have some form of protection on their house. If they didn't have a lot of money, they would have bars on their windows, but most people had a security system in addition to bars, if not all the other stuff that we had. Even even a, a mediocre house would have a big wall with some, some serrated edge around the outside edge. From a very young age, you're taught about how to deal with people if you're attacked or if somebody's following you or to cross the street, if somebody's behind you and you feel uncomfortable. Just the stranger danger there is just a very different scenario. Self-defense was taught in schools at a very young age. I was at an all-girls school, so we were taught about you know the danger of rape and that at a very young age. And I think the earliest I took self-defense was around nine or ten. After school, we, they, we would be taught how to react if, if we were to be attacked, how to get away, mostly. Another thing that I was given as a kid was a personal security device, which was basically like a little alarm that I put on my belt so that if I went like to the washroom and there was somebody that was trying to attack me, I'd pull the alarm cord and it would go off like a car alarm. It would be about as loud as that. And so that was just one extra precaution that if you're somewhere where you, nobody can hear you scream, that they can hear the alarm. There was always an awareness that danger was there, but you were taught kind of how to avoid it. So you didn't, I didn't think about it all the time, but I was aware of it all the time. I didn't go through my life afraid, but I went through my life aware that bad things could happen. I personally never experienced violence, but I knew a lot of families whose daughters had been attacked or raped or, and a lot of families that had been robbed. Most families that you talk to have had some form of violence against 
either members of their family or their children. My aunt was attacked in her bedroom with a, a man with a screwdriver. When she got out of the shower, he stabbed her in the head a number of times and broke into her safe. He knew where it was. I guess he'd been told by one of her employees where it was. And then her husband was stabbed by one of his employees after he fired them uh, coming out of work. So they had a tall wall, but they were very lazy about closing the gate. So sometimes the gate would just be left open. And I guess somebody snuck in. They lived in a hotter part of South Africa on the coast. And so often their doors would be open just for, just to get fresh air in the house. They locked them at night, but daytime they were open and this guy attacked her in the daytime. So violent stuff happened often, but it didn't ever happen to me personally. Actually, my God, I totally forgot. When my brother and I were small, I think I was around four or five. My brother was about six or seven because he's 18 months older than me. We were living in Pretoria, which is about half an hour from Johannesburg. That's where my parents lived when they were newly married. And uh, in the middle of the night, my mom heard a noise in the, our bedroom. We, had, we were sharing a bedroom, my brother and I. And so she came into the bedroom and she saw a black man with a knife to my throat and she screamed and told him to foot sack, which means like, get out of here and chased him out of the house screaming. Like she didn't have any weapons, but he was so terrified by how angry she was. She chased him out of the house, across the garden, over a rock wall apparently, because she used to do hurdles. She was a hurdler. So I guess she hurdled over a rock fence and she was gonna kill him if she ever got to him, but she, she didn't catch him. So that was the closest thing to something dangerous happening. I don't remember the incident, no. My mom just told me about it. So I first became aware of apartheid after immigrating to Canada. I started asking questions to my mom and learning about things, reading things, watching the news. I didn't know anything about apartheid when I was there. Like, I don't remember ever seeing a sign saying, you know, whites only. I never rode public transit, so I had no idea that there was segregation. My world was like a pretty sheltered little bubble when it came to stuff like that. I only knew my personal relationships. I never saw a black person being screamed at or mistreated in front of me or anything like that. Not, not that I remember, and I think I would remember because I would have thought that it was crazy. I think the only thing I ever saw that was like upsetting, but I think it was more warranted was was when our Melita was our um, the older maid uh, the aunt of Betty uh, she had been stealing from the house she'd been stealing cash from my mom's wallet and one night they left cash out and she had like stolen they knew exactly where it was it was like in the in they counted how much was in the wallet and then she came in and it was gone and then she found out that that she'd also been getting a truck to pull up at the bottom of our property and loading up stuff from our our pantry and household and stuff like that. So Betty had told us, her, her niece had said, look, you need to know, like, this is happening. It's been happening for months. And so we caught her loading up a pickup truck, basically, with stuff. My dad basically chased off the property and told her to go home and stuff like that. And I think that was the only kind of conflict I, I witnessed between a black and a white, like my father and, and her. But it, for me, I just... it was justified in that it was like blatant stealing and that she wasn't a good person, right? But then I, I, we thought about it and actually my mom, I remember her explaining to me, because she's a very compassionate person, and she said to me, you know, it's bad that she stole, but she st she's stealing to feed her family and she's stealing because she doesn't have a lot and she thinks that we have a lot and so we can afford to lose it. So she's like, it's really bad and she's, she's not coming back and we don't want her in our house because she's stealing. But she tried to explain to me 
like what what would cause someone to do that and I think that helped me understand it a little bit better as far as like what her reality was versus ours. I had known about Mandela before I had left. I'd heard his name for sure but I I wasn't like a political 12 year old or anything. I, I just remember watching the news. I remember like pretty vivid memories of watching the news um, getting ready for school and um, my mom always had a small like a small television where I would do my where she'd make me dry my hair every morning and comb my hair and I remember watching on the news uh, riots and that at political rallies and I remember seeing violence on television like massacres and shootings and like people screaming and like tear gas and so I remember seeing the stuff that I know now was gearing up for the revolution and, and for the end of apartheid and I, I know what I was watching in retrospect but as a kid I was like I just real I just remember thinking it was a very violent time and and I didn't know why I didn't know why it was happening but I knew it was around politics and around leadership of the country but I didn't ask a lot of questions I just found it kind of scary I was really fascinated by him after leaving because I left in 92 and that was when he was elected as president. I followed his journey and I thought that he was a wonderful man and he brought peace to the country and I was super embarrassed when I learnt that about apartheid. I remember feeling super ashamed and I was so thankful that somebody like Mandela took over because I really feel like he was running against another very militant man, militant black man, who had said that if Mandela wins that he would fight to the death. And in South Africa I was well aware of what that meant, which means like you have riots and basically just massacres and you just kill people. Like political rallies to have a <clears throat> massacre of two or three hundred people was not uncommon, just with machetes and machine guns and all that stuff. So if you don't agree with somebody's politics, you, you're dead basically. And so my fear was that the country would fall into civil war. And I think a lot of people thought that, which is why so many people left at that time. Mandela is, was and still is my biggest hero, I would say. If, if I could pick a hero, he would be my hero. My mom told me, uh, she came into my bedroom one night and she closed the door and she was just sitting on my bed. And she told me that we were gonna have to leave South Africa and that um, I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. They were going to take us somewhere which was safer and was like a better place to raise a family and that they were worried about things in South Africa. They were worried about about violence but also my dad. I found out at some point in those two weeks that he had made some business mistakes and that he we needed to leave the country and that it was really important that nobody knew that he was leaving because they could try to stop us. So that's the basically the depth of understanding that I had at the time. And uh, my mom also told me that she wasn't going to tell my brother, who was 18 months older than me, so I'm 13, he's 15. The story that he was told was that he was going on a vacation and that he should take his school books with him because um, it's going to be a long vacation, but that we're coming back and to South Africa. So I don't, don't remember packing any school books, but he packed his algebra book and his whatever books so he didn't fall behind. Yeah, I remember him having a seriously heavy suitcase because it had school books in it and I thought it was really stupid that he wasn't being told and really unfair. But I, I respected what my parents told me um, because I was scared. You know, I didn't want to be the reason that, that something bad happened to my family. And so I just trusted that it was the right decision and, and we left. 
I was really sad and I was scared. I think I think as a kid, like your most important things in your world are your friends often, and so I just I was really sad that I I couldn't tell them. I was ash I was ashamed after after I left that I couldn't say goodbye and I couldn't give them reasons. And I think that it was a big reason why I didn't reach out and and like try to establish contact again. When we left, I I also thought that there could be real trouble if I did reach out. So I think that in part it was like trying to protect my father, but I was also pretty ashamed of of leaving like that and feeling kind of like a bad friend. But prior to leaving, I threw a goodbye party for my best friend because she was leaving to go to some summer camp or something. And I thought it would be the one one way that I could have all my friends together. And although I couldn't say goodbye, it, it would feel like a goodbye because it was for her. But, you know, in my heart, it was for me. So that was the last time I saw all my friends. And then I told my best friend that night and we we cried and, and we were really sad. And I told her that I would get in touch when I could. And I didn't have any reasons because I didn't really know the reasons. And I remember my mom telling her best friend that night and being, you know, really distraught and sad and all the rest. And then we packed up our suitcases and I don't know about all the packing that was happening. I guess there was a lot of it because our stuff arrived in a shipping container months later. But we just packed up our suitcases and headed to the airport and the first stop was London. The first thing I remember is um, riding in the subways of London with our suitcases. And how awful that was because they were really heavy and my brother's 15 you know he's not super strong and he's I remember him carrying two suitcases because I probably couldn't carry mine I remember having a small toe behind like a day travel thing and my mom having hers and my dad having his and them being in huge fights because they couldn't figure out where they were going and London's um, underground system I remember it being very confusing and it was the first time my brother and I'd ever been overseas and I remember just carting our, our suitcases up and down stairs and through the city and my mom ru ru rushing off ahead. So she was almost out of sight because she was so mad at my dad and then trying to like catch up with her so we didn't lose her in London. And then I remember getting to our hotel, which seemed kind of fancy to me. Again, I'd never traveled before. It was just a very strange experience. I remember driving around in the in the in those big black taxis and the English... English uh, driver was really sweet and he was like oh there's Big Ben and there's this and that and he was just really proud of his city and I remember thinking that was really cool. Yeah so London was a bit of a blur mostly I think because my parents were fighting a lot and that was kind of stressful because we just left South Africa and they obviously were at each other's throats. I think she was probably really pissed that we were leaving that's probably what I'm assuming that she was mad about. That's my memory from London and then after London was New York. I totally remember being in the hotel in New York and sitting in the bathroom and just like locking the door and watching television because I hadn't, all the TV shows were like eight years ahead of us. The kid from the Wonder Years wasn't like a small little kid anymore. He was like this big dude. And I remember 90210, the characters were all different, sleeping with each other, different, different partners. And the freaking city never slept. Like it was just so loud all the time. I remember thinking like that uh, cliche, you know. I guess I was kind of excited about the whole thing like just because it was traveling and I knew and, you know, my brother and I were collecting pop bottles like Dr. Pepper and Cherry Coke and things that we hadn't had before. But we asked for extras from the plane and we carted around the small ones for a while because you can't get small ones except for on the plane. And we just drank a lot of those when we were in New York. After New York, we went to Florida and we stayed at this 
Orange Lake Resort, it was called. And the funny part was we were washing our clothes in the tub, I guess to save money, and it made our clothes orange because <laughs> the water was literally flowing orange. So all of our whites became orange. And we went to SeaWorld and Disney World and again, more vacation, more fun stuff. And then after that, we went to San Francisco, Saratoga, a neighborhood that our neighbors who had moved, our next door neighbors from, that lived beside us in South Africa, that's where they were living. And I think that was when I started to get sad because that was supposed to be our end destination. We started looking at schools and I remember just sitting, spending good chunks of the day just sitting in the motel playing video games with my brother. I feel like it got kind of heavy and kind of sad. The vacation part, not feeling like a vacation anymore. Just My brother and I, growing up, didn't really talk about heavy things. I remember sitting him down on numerous occasions, whether it be about my parents fighting or about missing home or whatever it was. He just didn't like to talk about hard things. He just wanted to focus on the positive or focus on today. Or But I just remember feeling like sad because I think he had just found out that we weren't going back. And he just kind of got really quiet and withdrawn, which, which he tends to do when, when he gets kind of hard information. I think that just the heaviness of, of not, not going home started to settle in. But I'm, I tend to be pretty positive, so I was like, okay, well, let's find a school that has a good hockey program because I really wanted to play hockey. My best friend was there, Mia, like from growing up. So that was kind of a cool thing. But yeah, it was still sad. We didn't end up settling there, and I think the reason that I was told at the time was that my dad was thinking about opening up a restaurant, but the South African Rand is worth, like, nothing. It's worth, I think it was eight to one at the time, and so bringing any money from South Africa would be easily worth very little there, and I think that he was just fearful of, of not making a go of it, and decided to move to Victoria because he had a job opportunity from a, a South African man that he knew. He offered my, my dad a job if he moved. So that's what we did. We moved to Victoria and he took a job with that guy. And we were kind of bouncing around from one rental place to the next, trying to find the right spot to live. So that felt weird because we were in these really small, like a really small house in Gordon Head. We arrived just before Christmas and we painted fake snow on the windows and we had our two cats that had, arriven, had, had arrived um, after being in quarantine. And, and then that night it snowed and it was the first, first time I'd seen well, experience kind of Christmas and snow and stuff, which is pretty cool. Whenever I would get into a new place, I needed it to immediately feel like home. So whether we were in like a motel for a week or moving into this new house, I would unpack the things that were most important to me, like a couple pictures and my little boxes of things that were important to me. I'd put posters up on the wall, like I would basically move in that night. So I remember, you know, just kind of putting the bedroom together and feeling like, okay, this is going to this is going to be my home for a bit, or however long that was going to be. And it felt very strange, but yeah, it was like nothing like our life back home and we'd just been on this epic journey. So I think in some ways it felt good to to know that this was going to be our home for a bit. Um it's just my brother and I and my parents and they seemed kind of happy in that moment. Brentwood Bay was where we actually spent a good chunk of time, I think about four years, and it was a really luxurious home, and it had it was right on the water, and my dad had got a boat for us to water ski with, and got us water skiing outfits, and we were going to private school, and driving, you know, fancy little gold Jeep Cherokee, which I thought was pretty swanky, and so life seemed like comfortable and 
different, but uh, like okay. But then financial situations changed for our family, which I, I learned that my parents had to declare bankrupt bankruptcy because money wasn't coming in from South Africa. My dad had racked up a bunch of debt with the boat and the house and the car and everything was on lease payment. Credit cards were all racked up and what have you. So I think at that point, pretty obvious that there was some financial issues because, well, my parents were fighting about it all the time. But then we ended up moving to a different house in Temal Point. I was still at private school. I know that we couldn't really afford to go to the private school that we were going to because my mom was constantly like pawning jewelry to pay for our fees or uh, she would sell Persian carpet, she would sell silver, whatever she had of value she would sell. Like I just remember coming home and stuff would be gone and she'd say, it's okay, I'm gonna just make sure you get your school stuff paid for. And, and I know my dad had like one random job after the other. He was selling sealant for commercial vehicles, driving up and down the island, living in warehouses and showering at gyms, stuff that I could never see my dad doing in the past because he always had so much money. And then he sold used cars. And he was always like the car salesman of the month and that was his big pride. It's always been like, he has to be the best at whatever he's doing or he's not happy. It was tough times and my dad would drink a lot and my parents would fight a lot. And Well, he always drank a lot and they always fought a lot in South Africa, but we had all the other niceties around it. And then when we were in Canada, we didn't really have the luxurious lifestyle, but we still had all the problems. So I think that made the problems feel worse. I could see the huge sacrifice that they had made, well, particularly my mom, because I cared for her very much. And I could see how sad she was to be here because she really struggled to make friends and she didn't have any formal education to help her get a good job. So she had crappy jobs, low paying jobs, had no friends. And yet my brother and I were going to nice schools and had opportunities at university and were playing sports and like living our life. It seemed like her life kind of stopped and neither of them had great jobs. They were both visibly depressed about the circumstance. And so for me, I think I just felt grateful to them for wanting to give us a better life. And I remember feeling very grateful to be a woman and have the freedoms that we have here to go camping by yourself or go for a run or go for a walk down the street or not feel that fear. You know, people leave their doors open to their house. People don't lock their cars, like, which I think is a little bit silly. But the fact that that's okay and that probably nothing's gonna happen for me is just like, like we're really lucky. We live in this very, very safe part of the world. I miss South Africa and I, I missed it a lot as a kid, but I'm overall, I'm happy to have grown up here. When I was a kid and I first moved here, the questions were always like, if you're from South Africa, why are you white? Aren't they all black there? So my cheeky answer was, if everyone's black, then who's causing all the problems? I'm like, have you heard of about apartheid? Let me tell you about apartheid. And then I would kind of educate them about the differences between blacks and whites and the culture there and the racism and all that stuff. And then they were like, oh, interesting. By and large, the people that I went to school with had no idea about the problems in South Africa or anything about apartheid or that politics. And then they would ask what Africa was like and they'd ask if there were lions in the streets and like, basically they thought that it was like the Serengeti where I lived. So I just remember the conversations around South Africa just being me educating them about how I lived in a city and you could go see these wild animals but you'd have to go to a game reserve and there'd be like guards and we weren't just walking amongst them. I thought about going back after I graduated from high school here 
because my parents had just split up and I felt like it would be great to have a fresh start somewhere new and I knew how beautiful South Africa was and I missed my family and so I went for two or three months and I and I stayed with my cousin at her farm and then I spent time with my, my aunt and uncle on the coast where I grew up and went surfing and you know playing in the sea and everything that I remember growing up and spent quite a bit of time in Cape Town which is I think the most beautiful place in the world uh, and I remember feeling like I had no home at that point because in, in Canada I'm always asked where are you from and when I was in South Africa, they were like, oh, you sound different. Where, where, are, you, where, are, you, where are you from? So, well, people, first of all, told me I sounded like I was American. So I was really offended. I remember feeling a little bit like I was maybe only at home and in, in the air, like somewhere between them. And that maybe South Africa and Canada are neither of them are my home. Maybe I haven't found the home. Uh, and I wondered about that, I think, all through my 20s. I was viewed differently and then I, because I had left as a child and returning as a, as a young adult, I guess I saw other sides of South Africa that I didn't experience as a child, like having beers and tailgating at a rugby match and, you know, going out to, you know, pubs and doing the things that young adults do. Like I never experienced that side of it really. So that was kind of fun and things felt like I remembered them. I remember thinking that things smelt the same and were beautiful like I remembered them and the vibrancy of the country was as I remembered it. But I was more aware of the kinds of jobs that black people had or whether or not they seemed educated or seemed like they had grown up uneducated. I remember watching for those kinds of changes and signs. And so in five years, there had been some changes for sure, like that I could notice, but I didn't know if I was noticing them because I was seeing them for the first time or whether they had actually been changes. But I was happy that it seemed to not be worse than I remembered it, if you know what I mean, because everybody was talking about things getting really, really crappy. And when I was in Cape Town, I really considered going to the University of Cape Town and just starting fresh there. But I decided to come home because I was worried about my mom, because my parents had just recently split and I was worried that she needed a person, like needed me to be her person. So I decided to come back to Victoria so that I could be there for her. and. Sometimes I regret not doing that and just doing something for me and being young and uh, even if it was just for a short time, just living kind of a carefree life there for a bit. I try not to have too much regrets about that, but that's one of the few things I do regret is not going back and living there for a bit. I don't feel like I was a part of apartheid. Like I don't feel like I would ever have supported it as a person. I would never have, I would have fought against it. I know that for sure as because it, it's, it's just so wrong to treat people that way. If I was an adult and had been a part of that system, then maybe I would have felt like I needed to be there to wa watch the wrongs be righted. But I think because I was a child and I feel like I wasn't really a part of it and then I left and came back, I felt quite removed from it all. And I was glad that things were changing, but I didn't feel a sense of responsibility to be there or anything like that. I mean, I've been back four, three or four times, and each time I go back, I think I feel a bit more like a tourist, but at the same time, I feel like a real nostalgia or like I feel like Africa, South Africa is in my blood. Like I feel like it's my homeland, but I feel like Canada's my home. Like it's it's a strange feeling. Like I, I definitely feel like I have it in my in my roots and it'll always be something very important to me. And I definitely want to take our kids back there to experience it and to know it and to get to know it. But I feel very much Canadian in the way I view the world and probably mid-twenties I started to feel 
a bit more Canadian. I did get a Canadian maple leaf tattooed on my back at 18, as soon as I got my citizenship. Mm. Uh, but it was more of a statement of duality because it's in, it's in the middle of Africa. So I guess in, in a way that was like a statement that I'm, I'm Canadian, but I'm still, I'm still South African. I wanted to belong for sure. And I knew South Africa wasn't going to be my home. So yeah, I was pretty happy when I became a citizen. Felt good, have the Canadian passport. I always liked the maple leaf. Same Hand is a project produced and edited by Duncan Gidney. Our website is thesamehand.com where you can find more info and other episodes. Thanks so much for listening.